Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1991 Albert Brooks film, Defending Your Life. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, Sam. Barrett, there's so much that I want to talk about with this movie. Uh, it was definitely a tonal shift from some of the things that uh, that we were talking about, but also um, of a piece of in terms of the the larger conversation we're having here. This didn't this doesn't feel like a sort of random thing floating out there, but I, I feel like this speaks to a lot of um, a lot of things, a lot of even questions we've been talking about uh, in some of the films. But let's start with our with our usual first question. What is your history with this film, and what is your history with Albert Brooks? Yeah, I'll do the Albert Brooks part because um, I am old enough to have been a Saturday Night Live watcher from the first season in 1975, and that's how Brooks kind of got his start. Um, he made a number of short films uh, for SNL in the 70s, um, and then he started making um, feature-length film in the late 70s. In fact, his first film is one of the early kind of it's a it's a, mock, a mockumentary called Real Life, which was a, uh, a a satire of a 1973 series, which was a genuine uh, on PBS, which is a genuine documentary following one ordinary family's life. Um, and then since then, with one exception, I think I've seen everything that he that he's made. He did Lost in America uh, in eighty what was that eighty five, and then um, this film, and then. Mother and the Muse and Looking for Comedy in the Muslim World. So by the time Defending Your Life came out, I was I thought I was pretty much an Albert Brooks fan, or at least I knew I wanted to I wanted to watch it. What 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 is um what makes an Albert Brooks film or an Albert Brooks project like what is distinct about him? Well it, one one thing is distinct about him is he's kind of a um he's kind of a Woody Allen type. And in, in one of the things that the, the, and the films always in some way revolve around him, uh, but they also involve, again, a little bit like Woody Allen, but I think he, in an even more self-deprecating way than Woody Allen, they, they, they involve him being in some ways feckless. Uh, he's, he's usually facing problems. He's usually misunderstood. Um, he's usually trying to overcome obstacles and he's not terribly skillful at doing it. So a lot of it is self-deprecatory. I would also say that as a satirist, he's very um, he's very gentle. He's not a he's not a sharp, sardonic kind of satirist because some of the satire is directed often at himself. It's interesting because my history with Albert Brooks is kind of the complete opposite. I am very familiar with him, but I think that other than I've seen some of his SNL stuff, um, obviously not in the the time because I wasn't alive in 1975, but I've seen some of that. But other than that, I'm, I know him as an actor in things made by other people. So um, he is famously one of the, the great guest stars on the Simpsons. He has a number of pretty um, iconic Simpsons characters that he'll, you know, occasionally come in and do. Um, uh, finding Nemo, he's the the voice mm -hmm. of Marlin, and plays a very Albert Brooksy character in that to a certain degree. Like like there's, I can see elements of other things in him. I mean, he was very well cast in that uh, movie, like Broadcast News. Um, right. So like I know him from those things, but I think this is the first uh, feature film of Albert Brooks uh, that I've that I've ever seen. Um, and I. I want to jump right into sort of connections here. Uh, this is very much kind of a, a high concept comedy. Like it's very easy to pitch the idea of this. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and this is, I would say in that way, it's kind of the 
third of these that we've done. I feel like Groundhog Day, pretty high concept comedy. Downsizing, pretty high mm-hmm. concept comedy. Um, and this, so like, I definitely felt not that th- those are similar movies in, in necessarily in any way, but sort of this idea of um, one of the reasons that those things work, that that those three movies work, um, uh, among among other things, is that they're all the type of thing that as you're watching them, you can't help but cast yourself in them. So like when you're, when you're watching groundhog day, you think, Oh, what would I do if I was mm. in this, this moment or with the downsizing thing, like you're forced to to think about like, well, would I make this choice? And in mm-hmm. the same way, and I think this is one of the great things about uh, defending your life. Uh, and it's what makes it a, a pretty heady film in a kind of way is it, 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 it just it insists that you reflect on your life because you're watching people have to do this. Mm-hmm. So I, I can't imagine watching this and not walking out of it saying, what would my nine days be? What would be the, what would be those things? So I, I, to that degree, I find that it works really, really well. You know, I, I wasn't even conscious of thinking that as I was watching it, Sam, but that is so right because... I immediately, you're right, I immediately, when they said they had nine days, I immediately thought that it would not be difficult to pick nine pretty bad days uh, in my life and put them right up there. The other, the other very personal connection for me, which is completely my, my response, is um, my wife and I, our first church, we were young Christians. Our first church was a very odd church. It had some fundamentalist strains. Um, and one of the things that that pastor said, and this would be, this is in the early not, early 80s when things like video, VHS are just kind of on the rise. This is exactly what he said Judgment Day would look like. He said that, the, the, that we would stand before God and there would be this big video screen and it would show our life. Uh, and that's how we would be judged. So <laughs> when I got to this film, I was like, oh my gosh, that, don't, don't tell me that's really the way it's going to be. Well, it is funny because one of the one of the things that I that I, I noted was how uh, how well this movie plays in a world not just of video cameras and VHS kind of things from the eighties, but now we're living in a world of DVR where you can sort of record everything live on demand video streaming. The fact that we all carry cameras around with us, the fact mm-hmm. that we've spent this year on Zoom and you know, in, in terms of class, thinking about like um, how often people like we're not only having even what we're doing right here, we're having a conversation, but we're also recording the conversations yes. and just how much that uh, that sort of plays into this notion of the next life is like, well, we've been recording all like we ourselves have started to record all of this stuff so that that we could we could potentially do these types of things you know you can imagine 20 30 years from now actually doing a retrospective on your life and digging in and saying well let's think about some of the issues that come up let's go to the tape <laughs> um which makes me think a, l- a little bit about about sort of the role of of memory you know uh, this is one of the you know as as i'm, I'm one of those people who has a i think this is typical for Gen Xers is that we live in this world where the first, you know, really 18 years of my life, I lived in a world that was not sort of deeply connected. You know, I, I got to live a little bit of what it felt like the 20th century was. And then I hit college and all of the sudden 
I was online and like, mm -hmm. and the world changed, you know, in that way. And I think that that really does do things to our memory. We don't train our memories in the same way. Um, so that, so it's, 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 it's interesting to think about kind of the, the role of memory, because although they're watching tape, this is also, again, what we just said it does to ourselves is it makes us have to replay our memories a little bit and think about those days, things like that. So, um, you know, which made me think about Memento and somebody who has this inability to continue to, you know, continue to make memory in that way. Um, but one of the things that I thought was interesting about the, uh, an interesting filmmaking choice is that when they go to watch the film, watch the clips, that they're not uh, sort of POV shots from, from Daniel. You're not seeing it from Daniel's point of view, but instead you're seeing the scene from um, maybe they would think an objective point of view, but it also touches on this idea that, uh, and this plays into reality TV and all these things that this posits a world where everyone's life is a TV show or a movie that you could go back and watch, um, which is a, which is an interesting thing to think about in 1991 and then to play that out, you know, 20 years later. And uh, it sort of feels like that a little bit more that everybody can kind of, you know, curate their life, but put their life out into the public in a kind of way. Well, actually, actually, that, that makes me think it's kind of a, of, a, of a sideways reference, Sam. That makes me think about The Truman Show, another, another, another high concept comedy where Truman's life is, in fact, a show, although he doesn't know that it's a show, but still it, it, it is a show. It also makes me think about one of the Calvin and Hobbes strips when Calvin decides to narrate his own life and he walks around and he provides his own soundtrack and, uh, and laugh track. It also uh, it also makes me think about um, if we're just throwing throwing references that 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 this movie makes me think about. Uh, have you ever watched any of the? It's a British. It's on Netflix now. It's a British show called Black Mirror. Oh, I love Black Mirror. Okay, fact, so yeah, there was one episode in particular that I thought of. Let's see if you're thinking of the same one. The entire history of you. Is that yeah. the episode? Yeah, I thought about. I mean, it's it's a darker version of like wrestling with this this sense that you can go back and keep yeah. replaying, and that has more to do with like memory and regret, memory and like uh, litigating the past and some of the choices that we make. But yeah, that's I exactly what I thought about. I would. It's a, it is a, a a very dark, painful story, but I it's something I would recommend. I, there there's some episodes mm -hmm. of dark mirror that are tough watches, but I think yeah. that's a particularly great, uh, particularly yeah. great episode. Um, well, thinking about this movie, I mean, I, I do think it has sort of real timeless qualities to it, but at the same time, it strikes me as very, very 1991, um, yeah. at the, at the same time. Uh, and I will say, I, 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 as I was thinking about this, I realized that in 1991, my parents were 43 years old which is the exact age that I am now. So it's, it's sort of fascinating to think about that um, a little bit. And um, I think about how much of my, the pop culture of my childhood, uh, you know, all the way up through the mid nineties and even, you know, into today, I can see through the lens of watching baby boomers age to a certain degree. You know, I think about this, this film in lots of ways is um, because I think the character is, I think he's supposed to be 39 in this movie. Brooks is, is kind of around that age um, when he makes this, but this is them. This is, this is somebody reaching the age of 40 and thinking about the meaning of their life, like at reaching a, a point in middle age where they're starting to reflect on what is the kind of, what is the meaning of, of, of my life. Um, 
you know, I think that's clearly something Brooks is wrestling with a little bit as he's thinking about this. And uh, I was, there was an article, I think in uh, one of the New York times reviews that talked about how this movie can fit in with a bunch of other, what he referred to as sort of carpe diem movies Mm -hmm. from this same time. So a movie like dead poet society field of dreams isn't, I mean, I think there's a, a, a line in Field of Dreams where Ray Kinsella even says, I'm 36 years old and I'm scared to death of turning into my father or something like that. Like there's this moment of I've reached this age where I need to think about, I need to sort of reflect a little bit more. So in that way, it feels very, very, uh, uh, it feels 1991 in that way as, you know, um, because I think of, and that's maybe personally for me, I think of my life tracking with, culture which has to do with baby boomers dealing with different parts of their life so in the 80s there's a lot of 1950s and 60s nostalgia in the culture that i consumed because it was being created by people the generation before and that was their childhood um i even think about a movie like um back to the future right they go back to the 50s and there's this sort of you know kind of 50s nostalgia my favorite example of this though is um and i realize we're not talking about defending your life yet but we're going to um (laughs) is the the TV show Family Ties, which was one of my favorite shows as a kid. And it is about uh, sort of post-hippie baby boomers who are wrestling with having Reagan-era kids. Mm. Um, so, this, so so all of these feel like like a piece. And as I realized, like, so much of my life was watching in pop culture baby boomers deal with whatever stage of life they were in because they were the people creating the culture that I was seeing. And this, this sort of feels of a piece of this. And it's fascinating now to be the age of Albert Brooks and my parents when a movie like this came out. So it's a long way to say it feels very 1991 in that way to me. Yeah, it does. And I, and I, and I, and going into it, I was, I was curious how it would hold up for that very reason, because, um, you know, I, I have to confess there were very few scenes I remembered from the film, but I certainly remember that opening scene. That's pretty hard to forget. Uh, and I, and I remember thinking about, you know, one of the things that's going on is this is really kind of the height of the, the, the yuppie era. Um, and you know, so the Albert Brooks character is kind of, you know, he's not exactly the, the, the quintessential yuppie is he doesn't have a wife and kids, but he's got the Beamer and he's got this, you know, materialism, uh, kind of driving his life. And and that's what I find kind of interesting about the film, that it both is a critique of materialism, and yet at the same time, it's kind of built on materialism. You know, it's one of the, I mean, it's a very materialistic approach to the afterlife. And, uh, you know, one of the critics says that, um, you know, the whole uh, the whole Judgment City looks like it could have been built by, you know, by, well, it fits very nicely, as they say, it fits very nicely into the landscape in which he's come. So that's why I find kind of interesting about the film, both the way that it critiques that materialism, but almost, in a sense, embraces it at the same time. Because the whole point of making progress in the universe is really um, just evidently brain power um, and, and overcoming fear. Right? So it's interesting, right. it's intellect and it's emotion. And so it's a very, in my view, it's kind of a very materialistic way to think about uh life eternity destiny i mean it's an interest it's interesting that it's a uh, it's a film that, uh, that that takes on a deeply religious spiritual question without any hint of religiosity or spirituality um, absolutely absolutely i just mentioned once right uh, uh rip torn bob diamond says something about there is a god or I, I can't remember the exact line when he first meets uh daniel but that's it otherwise you know we're told there there's a kind of um 
There's a kind of Eastern spirituality about it. The universe runs itself. It's almost like a Hindu version of the universe. You've got reincarnation going on. Um, it's got a Christian element in that Judgment City is, in a sense, it's the final judgment. It was also kind of purgatory because there's still the opportunity that you can actually somehow grow spiritually and move on. So it's really interesting. It's this mishmash. It works, but it's still, it's kind of this mishmash of all this different stuff. And ultimately, it's not really religious, but it's about a really deeply religious idea. Yeah. And Brooks talked about like imagining the afterlife as if it was run like a business, you know, yeah. and that, and that fits into all of this, all of this as well. I want to get to this idea that the, the core virtue that they're looking for is fearlessness, yeah. which is really interesting. I don't know that that would be the virtue that I would choose, but it's interesting to think about why sort of why fearlessness. Um, so I was, I'm curious your thoughts, your thoughts about that. Well, I mean, because I actually think that's a pretty profound idea, um, Sam, because when I, when I look at a lot of human conflicts, when I look at a lot of human dysfunction, when I look at ways in which things kind of go off the rails and, and, you know, I, if I look at some of the current issues that face our society, um, I mean, so much of it is driven by fear, fear of loss of power, fear of loss of position, fear of loss of respect, fear of loss of life. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not a, um, uh, it's, it is a very insightful analysis of one of the issues of human society. If you think about it, we build a lot of our institutions around fear. We build a lot of our uh, our processes around fear. So this doesn't go wrong or so that person doesn't get ahead of me or so we're not attacked by these people. Look at the size of the defense budget of each country. I mean, fear does seem to be a really kind of fundamental uh, human emotion. And the idea that fear is what holds us back from using more of our brain because we're spending so much of our time being afraid of things. I mean, that's, that's a pretty interesting insight. Yeah. And it's interesting. Uh, in an interview, Brooks talked about um, the, the cinema score for this movie. He said it like it scored better than anything he'd ever had. It got a B plus, And he said, I never get that. But he said, the interesting thing is it got an a plus from people aged 18 to 25. Mm. Which is which is interesting because the even the the studio is like yeah we're not going to market this to eighteen to twenty five year olds like this is a this that's not that's not our target audience for this and but but he's like but it's interesting that they were that the people that age were so drawn to this idea of fearlessness because he talks about like the, so that's as people are graduating from high school in college graduating from college. And he said, fear is the overwhelming sense you have. I mean, you don't have some of these, you don't have some of the comforts that you maybe get as you get a little bit older and a little bit more settled. So he said, it's like, that's not, it wasn't who it was targeted at, but those were the people who were seemed to respond to it even better. And so his, his theory was that, that, that idea of fearlessness was this, uh, was this thing that spoke to that, to people of that age, even though that's not. You know, none there you don't see really see any characters that age in it. And in fact, they're written out of the movie. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I will all, it just occurred to me, I will I will bring to uh, Brooks's side one of the uh, the great one of the greatest of the 20th century uh, poets, uh, T.S. Eliot, um, in the love song J. Alfred Prufrock, um, the main motivator or demotivator for Prufrock is in fact fear. Um, and, and you could identify that as one of the themes of that poem, that Prufrock does not do any of the things he wants to do because he's afraid. He's afraid of what other people will think of him. He's afraid of the consequences, so he doesn't try. Um, one of the, the, 
the other things that I, I think is interesting though is like it's not it is it is fearlessness, but then there's also this this sense of focusing on fear. It undercuts some of I mean it 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 like it provides this sort of critique of materialism that the, the movie does, but it also is sort of like this isn't about good and bad. It's not about they're not being judged on those things. Because what's interesting is like I found fascinating one of the the scenes that they go to is when he's getting the stock tip on Casio. And it's not that he did something to make himself wealthy, but actually he was afraid to do that. Mm-hmm. And so it's like so it, it it turns on its head. And and what's great is you see you see even the Daniel character having to wrestle with this. It's like, wait a minute, this and, and they keep telling him, Yeah, it's not about the things you think it's about. Right. It's about fear, it's about it's about, you know, this how are you dealing with fear? Um, this also made me think of the fact that we in, watched a 1993 movie called Fearless, which is also a deeply spiritual movie. And like part of that character's spiritual enlightenment is he loses the ability to like have fear <laughs> for a while. So it's, it's very, it's very interesting. Something, something in the air at that point. Well, you know, I, I think, I think what's important and it's kind of gets us in, closer to the end of the film, but I think what's important is I, I don't think it's, even though they talk about it being fearlessness or overcoming fear, what enables Daniel to overcome fear is love. So it's, it's not just the lack of fear, but it's the presence of something else. And so you see that scene where, um, you know, Meryl, Julia runs into the burning house. Well, she runs into the burning house. Yes, she's fearless in doing that, but she also does it because of her love for her children and her love for the cat that she rescues. So fearlessness, in a way, it, 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 that sounds positive, but in a way, it's also potentially a negative idea. It's just like it's the, it's the absence of fear as opposed to the presence of something else. And so what enables him to overcome that fear is, 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 is love. And, and what's interesting about the film, again, is that they fault him for not spending the night with Julia because they say that he was afraid. But he also didn't want to spend the night with her because of the way he was wrestling with love. And he didn't, and he didn't want to destroy what, what they were perhaps building together. So I think it's very important that the film isn't explicit about that, but I think that's a really uh, key element. I want to go, I want to sort of move into the, the high concept part of this and talk a little bit about uh, the creation of Judgment City uh, itself. So uh, w- were there things that stood out to you? I mean, this is the, because this is is part of the, the vehicle for a lot of the jokes of the movie is, you know, he gets, as we get taken into the afterlife and it's maybe not what we expected. I mean, I also feel like if this movie were made now, um, this would be a Pixar movie because this feels like of a part with a movie like Soul and and some of these mm-hmm. other things. Um, this is the kind of thing Pixar likes to do. And and this, you know, and I was thinking about that, and then I realized, yeah. And Albert Brooks plays one of the most famous Pixar characters as well. So it's like, yeah, man, I could just imagine him. I could imagine this as a as a great Pixar movie because because it, it plays in that in that way. But as you think about Judgment City, what are the things that uh, that interest you or jump out to you? Well, I, I, I obviously I like some of the jokes. Um, for example, the sign that says, you know, welcome to the Kiwanis dead. Uh, and, you know, so uh, the, 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 the idea that, that people are both dead and yet acting the way that they acted in life. You know, so it's also they're, they're, they're dead, but they're not, they're not disembodiedly dead. And so 
the other thing, of course, which is a constant joke, which I which I, I, I like, is the idea that in Judgment City you can eat whatever you want, and there's and there's no no calories. There's no, there's no there's no cost, and so I thought I thought that I thought that was great, and and uh, the various billboards that they that they see when they're when they're on the tram. So it's it's um, I don't know. I just I, I felt he had a very um, it was a very consistent concept that he that he that he, he created. It was both this this life and and next life. Yeah, and I, I loved I loved the idea of um, the the food thing being something that that runs throughout it, and there is this sense that you you see the Meryl Streep character constantly eating, and you rarely see Daniel do. Although whenever he does, he talks about how great it is, but he seems to have all this anxiety about eating still. Which so that's it's this little way that they're even still pointing to like he still has. And whether it's some kind of fear about it, or he's or he's so caught up in everything else that he's incapable of enjoying what's in front of him, where she's like, like I love when they're sitting on the tram and she's very slowly eating a corn dog. <laughs> it's just it, it's it's a, it's a great it's it's a great a great runner um, throughout that. One of my favorite scenes, because it was weird in Judgment City, is the comedy club. Mm-hmm. Um, I found it so interesting because it's. It's such an unfunny, like like the comedian is so unbelievably unfunny, um, and it, it it made me think, okay, why is it unfunny? And I have I have a couple different theories as to why it might be unfunny, um, and we'll see if any of these resonate with you. Um, one would be that we're told by, I think by the the Rip Torn character and a couple other people when Daniel first gets there, uh, that. You know they've created Judgment City so the people because there's there's multiple Judgment Cities for different parts of the world and even different parts of the country because this is like West Coast Judgment City. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we're told that they've created the world so people would sort of feel comfortable there. So it's like yeah, we even put in malls because people seem to like malls and you know so it's like this. So there's a degree to which it's kind of like a simulation of life almost. Like okay, what what do we know about your life? So we're going to put some of those things in there. Um, which made me think of things like uh, the Matrix. This idea that in the Matrix, like the world itself is a simulation, and and they even in that story they they talk about um, how like it's not the first Matrix. Like there were a couple, and they they didn't get it right the first time, and they finally could create a simulation where people's brains could accept it. Um, it made me think of, uh, and I think this is referenced by Ebert and a couple other people. Two thousand one, A Space Odyssey. At the end, yeah. when uh, the character is in this kind of a hotel room like thing and it's unclear like is he did they create this to make him feel like he was on earth so so um so so one of the arguments is the comedy club is unfunny because it's a it's a bad simulation they like could Mm. see like what a comedy club was and like okay we'll do something like that but clearly they didn't do a very good job of it i also wondered like is fear an element in comedy and if you take it it, you know because that comedian is not uh, a soul awaiting judgment the comedian because he's not wearing the same clothes i mean he's a he's a citizen of judgment city and is it just when you don't have fear like as this element like that that somehow kills comedy i don't know if that's like a, a weird albert brooks commentary there um or is it just that if we if we could use more of our brains we would find that funny in the same way that the food that that uh bob diamond eats tastes terrible to daniel but he's like well you just don't you can't understand you know so i I just i thought that was such an interesting scene because brooks is a he's a comedian he's a very funny person and then to have this comedy club scene in judgment city that is so unbelievably unfunny if there's not even jokes in that the guy's making well i i i took it a little bit differently sam i i took it 
to say, okay, if we're going to do a simulation of things on Earth, how often have you walked into a comedy club and realized that the guy up there is just no good? <laughs> so, <laughs> he's intentionally hacky. No, that's the way I took it, that, that, that whether he was doing it intentionally or not, that that's, that that's what it was recreating. It's recreating the sense of, you know, I mean, I'm just trapped in this terrible, terrible, terrible routine. That That's okay. That's a theory I hadn't thought of, but that, that makes sense as well. Um, another sort of uh, bigger question about Judgment City that I sort of wondered is, we're constantly told by the lawyers and people like this, you know, that, oh, I use 47% of my brain or 55 or 63. Um, so, but it made me wonder, are the people who are the residents of Judgment City, are they stuck in Judgment City awaiting the next step? Because they're not using all of their brains, they're just using yeah. more of them. So it makes me wonder, okay, if fear's not holding them back, what is holding them back? That's a really good question, you know, because one of the one of the things we don't know is we don't know where you go when you move on. So yes, maybe maybe you move on and you become a resident. And um, I don't know what do you. I, the, there's no indication of this, but does Rip Torn, does Bob Diamond need to win more cases, and would that show he's using more of his brain? I, I that's not yeah. clear. But but that's also undercut by the appearance of Buck Henry. Who supposedly uses more of his brain than Rip Torn? By the way, they both were together in the 1975 film *The Man Who Fell to Earth*, uh, and uh, Buck Henry is, of course, a really, really funny guy. Um, so, and he and he says nothing, right? Uh, and he's got four percent more of his brain working than Bob Diamond does. So, what does that mean? Is he is he so smart that his defense is is incomprehensible, or is it all just kind of a charade? I, I I don't know. I found it very amusing, and 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 it was great to watch Daniel kind of flounder. But yeah, you have to wonder what's going on. Yeah, I also love the the uh, the past the idea of the past lives pavilion as a as I mean it, it even sounds like something that would be at Disney World, you know, or like like an Epcot Center. You could go to the past lives pavilion and um and it's just it's it's such a it's such an interesting uh, such an interesting thing. And what's also I find fascinating is that the Julia character, the Meryl Streep character, the life she sees of for herself seems like this fearless life from the middle ages it's like why was that person like what kept that person held that person back or or um or something like that but the the, the best part is and this is also very 1991 is the shirley mclean joke in that that she is the um she is the the host the virtual host of the past lives pavilion um and she was famously the, an advocate for the idea of past lives and reincarnation so it just it's a, a great sort of little joke embedded in that. That, that 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 was one of those moments Sam, where i really regret watching a comedy by myself because i i would have thought you know this would have this would have been a great you know back when oak street cinema was was in operation and one of the things I loved about going to Oak Street was, uh, this is still true of Minneapolis Film Society, is when you sit in a, in a room with a film, watching a film with people who kind of know what's going on. So I just kind of imagined, you know, knowing laughter from those of us of a certain age, because yes, because of Shirley MacLaine, she'd done books uh, out on a limb, dancing in the light, going within. And, and one of the things I love, I, do, I don't like Shirley MacLaine as an actor. She's one of, she bugs me in a lot of ways. But I will credit her with self-deprecation. So when she showed up at the Oscars uh, in 2017 and she got a standing ovation, she said, that's the nicest reception I've had in 250,000 years. 
great line. The, the, the other thing I found interesting about the past lives of Billy, and you, you made the connection to Disney World, is even in the afterlife, they cannot avoid lines. And, 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 and the idea that you've got to get on the tram because the tram is leaving now. I mean, I, I, just, I just love the way that they're still constrained by time. Right? You can eat all the food you want, but you still got to get to a certain place on time. Yeah, so even when he goes to that the the restaurant the first time and has the great omelet, he gets like two bites, and then you're like, well, you really, you really got to go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I also just to, to make a connection to another movie that we've already mentioned. Um, there is also a Shirley MacLaine past lives joke in Field of Dreams. So two years earlier, I think um, uh, Ray's wife is talking about sort of why why him, and she's like, why couldn't they pick Shirley MacLaine? It's like because yeah, so it's it's definitely in the air in the 1989 to 1991 um, yeah. range. Uh, some of the things that as I read reviews that people talk consistently about um, was the Albert Brooks, not just as the sort of creator of this world writer director, but his performance in this movie um, mm -hmm. and a lot of his kind of nonverbal performance in this movie, his, because we're watching him have to react to, doing something that I think would be hard for any of us to like, to actually revisit these difficult scenes from his life. And every time, I mean, it, it's, it's even just a great joke that the screen is not in front of him, but every time that chair has to turn back around for everybody to look at that. So then it gives him a, it gives him an opportunity to like display something on his face as that's turning around. Yeah, the camera spends a lot of time with it. On his, I mean, that's where he's most expressive. He's not a particularly physical comedian, but he is a very facially expressive comedian. And he's, and he's, a, he's a good actor, as you pointed out. He got either a nomination or actually an Oscar win for broadcast news. Um, and so a lot of the film's success really depends on the ability for him to kind of ring changes. You know, nervousness, uh, complacency, smugness concern fear i mean he does a good job of ringing all 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 those kind of changes and i would say one of the things that i loved about the nature of the storytelling is we have to get introduced to this idea of fear is the big hang-up right um because i again we show up at judgment city and we assume it's a what's what is the weight of the good versus the bad in your life because that's kind of at least in the west that's the narrative that we're mm -hmm. you're sort of culturally you know, you just um, absorb. So we're taught about fear as an idea. And then that sets up the restaurant scene. Mm -hmm. Because what I noticed is by the time I got there, I had absorbed the fear idea enough to realize how much, like, I just wanted to stop Daniel and say, do you realize what you're saying? Everything he's saying, there's even a moment when he is about to say I'm afraid and he, he gets to the A and he stops himself and he says something else and you're just like, they're watching, like, I, I, I didn't know how this movie ended and I knew they're watching you. Like, like you're still living out of fear. It taught, so what's cool about the way this movie works is it taught me an idea I didn't, I didn't come in with and then it gives me this scene to say, have you gotten it yet? Mm -hmm. In the same way, it's asking the character, have you gotten it yet? And I think as viewers, we get it before he does. Right, right. You know, and I think that that as just a piece of storytelling and filmmaking is really, really well done. Because I assume that's what they're going for. And it seemed very effective. Yeah. Yeah. I, in fact, I, I thought that I thought she was the prosecutor was going to show the restaurant scene. 
because he's completely motivated by fear in that scene. And, and what's ironic is he's concerned about the fear of looking like a glutton, right? He keeps looking over her, she's looking at him, and the, and the, the guy brings him the nine pies. And I mean, I thought that was where his fear was really completely out of control. And he, he seemed to have no sense that that was, that was problematic. You're right. He doesn't seem to get that at that point. The other great thing about that restaurant scene is we get what I assume is a, uh, a city lights reference with the pasta. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That and, uh, and maybe lady in the tramp as well. Um, but, but, but that's also what's interesting about the food scenes is what I said earlier about time that doesn't seem to be true with the food. I mean, the food shows up instantaneously. So uh, somehow they're able to materialize food like that, but the tram still leaves at 11. Right. Right. Uh, it was interesting. I didn't realize. I, I don't, I don't even think before it started, I didn't realize Meryl Streep was in this movie. Um, and you know, in some ways she seems she's perfect in this movie. She seems overqualified for this movie. Although e- even by 1991, she was overqualified for this role. Probably not as overqualified as she would be now. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, well, but, know, I mean, what, she'd already won won an Oscar at this. Yeah, point. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. She yeah, she was already pretty, 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 pretty big stuff, but she wasn't yet uh, a demigod. Uh, okay, she hadn't descended quite that high. But even 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 in the later part of her career, she's taken on a wide variety of roles. I don't think she's allowed herself to be typecast at all. But one thing I will say about Brooks is that um, he he gets some pretty remarkable female co stars. So um, when he makes his next film, the next film is called Mother, and he has Debbie Reynolds as his mother. And when he makes The Muse, Sharon Stone is the muse. Um, so he seems to find good comic partners uh, that, that he's not afraid of. He's not afraid of bringing a really powerful actor to share the, the billing with him and even give them, in a sense, more prominence. Yeah, I really, I really thought she was great in this movie, even though she... I mean, in some ways, doesn't have a lot to do, but she sort of perfectly embodies the. It's I just like I I can't think of somebody I would rather have than her in that in that role. I I thought she was great. Yeah, what I like about her, even though it's Meryl Streep, is I don't spend my whole time looking at her thinking, "Oh, that's Meryl Streep." You know, there's some actors like that that you just keep thinking, "Oh, it's that actor," but she she inhabits the role so so naturally, actually. Another interesting thing in the reviews, and I, I, I wish I had seen uh, earlier uh, Albert Brooks films, um, because one of the things that they talk about in the reviews is that the the key to this film working is that he he kind of made the love story central to it. Because you there's a version of this movie that doesn't have that. I mean, actually, his original ending was... Uh, presumably a much darker ending. He had, he had Daniel coming back to earth as a horse was the original ending, but he, he even realized like, although there's something to this as a, as a love story um, and as a kind of romantic comedy. And, and again, every, every review I read talked about like, here's the thing that Brooks did this time that really brings this movie home in a, in a different kind of way. So does that, does that, is that element different than what we would have seen in, uh, Lost in America or Modern Romance or any of the other. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to remember how how Lost in America ends, but it's certainly it's certainly darker. That that's that's for sure. And it's interesting, you know. At first, I I wasn't sure I was okay with the ending, and then because I thought, yeah, that's yeah, that's that's the genre ending. But then 
it worked for me because of what we've been talking about because he does make the love story. I mean, he's, he's got two conflicting stories going on at once, right? He's got the love story and he's got the judgment story. And I do like the way he brings those together. So it's not only a satisfying ending because that's how rom-coms end, but because it does seem to provide a kind of thematic closure to, 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 to how you deal with fear. So as you look at this movie, is there anything else you want to talk about? Yeah. Uh, the other thing I'm really interested about with this movie, um, Sam, is something you referred to earlier about the notion of the objective camera when you're looking at these past memories. And what's interesting to me is the courtroom scenes are really battling interpretations. And so especially as somebody, you know, who studies has studied literature, this is interesting to me that, you know, you can watch something and you can have the prosecutor say, here's what's going on. And you can have Bob Diamond say, no, you know, he's not afraid. He's showing restraint. And, and, and you know which interpretation seems better. But the idea that you really don't have a, a clearly objective view of life, even if you have an objective camera. And then you've got Daniel obviously, obviously trying to rescue this and saying, I feel very good about the restraint. The, the restraint. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but, but that also, but then the other thing I think is interesting is he raises a very interesting ethical question when they show him taking the blame for his friend, right? And then completely giving the friend up when his dad, uh, when his dad chastises him. And he raises a really interesting ethical issue question, right? So did he just negate the act of, of friendship, the act of generosity? Did he just negate that by giving the friend up? Does that mean that the sacrifice he made at that point was actually, um, was actually no sacrifice at all? Or instead, which I think is what the film is saying, is here's what happens when you have a virtue of selflessness, and then you have a a vice, I guess you could say, of fear. And, and, and it's not that necessarily they cancel each other out, but the ability you have to be generous, to be selfless, is now being hampered by your, your fear. At least the, that's the way I, I think about it. That's so really interesting. Yeah, yeah I, mean, so I, think, I mean, isn't that isn't what we think? I mean, and you're right to, you know, we tend to think this is a balance, right? Well, I, I did more virtuous things than I did vicious things. Therefore, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. But this is a much more, I think, subtle way to think about that tension it's also an interesting thing about the 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 courtroom scenes and and even just the the whole setup of this is it's an interesting uh commentary on documentary it's an interesting commentary on what we would think of as reality tv uh it's an just an interesting commentary on editing mm -hmm. it's like 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 what does somebody's look, life look like if you because i mean the fact that that he's 39 years old and we're going to look at nine days in his life. And that's going to be the thing that we, that we judge him on, you mm -hmm. know, that we make our decision based on that. And, and, you know, it, and that, that, and like you said, and even in those, we have interpretation, you know, it's like, well, if we, if we were to edit this and only see him in front of his father, we get one read. If we only see the classroom scene, we get another read. So it's also thinking about editing and storytelling, right? Like how do how do you tell the story of someone's life? And it's interesting. So you know, people always talk about movies that are secretly about movie making. It's like this seems like it's about mo like movie making and storytelling too, right? Like how do you sum up someone's life by you know looking at 
these disparate, a couple disparate pieces in trying to make a statement about who somebody is, which gets back to Citizen Kane, right? Like, how do you put together the pieces of somebody's life? This is maybe the movie making question. Yeah. yeah so the, uh, the, the alternate, the alternate title is editing your life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Or curating your life or something right. like that. Right. Yeah. Right. Which is, which again is why this seems to speak so well to 2021, because there's a degree to which if you look at, people's social media presences it's their attempt to do that to a certain degree it's like what are the pieces that i what are the days that i want to put out there what are the days what are the parts of the day that i want to put out there i mean we are uh, it's like we have moved from the afterlife of editing or defending your life to like now we're doing it in the moment right and we're creating this record as if to say if Albert Brooks is right and we're going to have to do this later, let's get out ahead of it and start to, you know, start to put the narrative forward. Uh, anything else with this movie? Yeah. One, one other thing I really like about this movie and, and, uh, and, and this, this is how the movie kind of reflects a, again, a religious concept without being religious about it. So, you know, Montesquieu famously said, I think it was Montesquieu, said that um, he could be kitten-like with his cat, but his cat be human-like with him, right? So this idea that there are mysteries that we can't understand. And so I, I, I love when, when Bob Diamond keeps telling him, you know, you wouldn't understand. And when, he, and when he says, where were you yesterday? And Bob Diamond says, you wouldn't understand. He says, no, come on, try me. He says, I was trapped in the inner circle of thought. He says, I don't understand what that means. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. I just love that idea that yeah. there, are, there are things that I think about it in terms of maybe these things that I don't know, that I wish you know, that somehow was revealed to us more clearly. Maybe they can't be revealed to us because we simply couldn't understand. It was like, if I'm trying to tell my five-year-old, here's how algebra works. It just, it's, it doesn't, it, you can't, your brain honestly cannot grasp it. So yeah. I put that in the category of mystery and I'm okay with it. Right. There's a, there's a great moment along those lines when there's another point where he says, I don't mean that as an insult. You literally can't understand. <laughs> so, and, and that's why I love the, the, the scene when they're eating lunch and he tries in, because it's like, what's interesting is it's not like Bob diamond is holding things back from him. He's like, trust me, you're not, you're not going to. So when he lets him try his food and he's like, yeah, it's, this is what I mean. You don't, you can't even sense this in the way I sense this because of the differences between us. Which also suggests to me that the residents have different bodies. It also suggests to me that the residents actually get some nutritional value from that food. And that's why the, the, the recently dead can't eat it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Barrett, I loved, uh, I loved this conversation. This movie was like such a breath of fresh air. Um, just, it just felt, I mean, it felt so much lighter to watch. Um, but at the same time to think about, it was like, oh, it, it both, it connects with a lot of other things. And I think it, 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 it really has big, big questions to it. And I, like, like you said, I think this sort of thinking about the role that fear plays is, is interesting. And I think that also, um, you know, makes me think what are, what are the things that hold us back from, um, from acting the way we would authentically want to act, you know, what, what role, what what role does fear play? Are there other things that do that? Um, and I think that's a, it's, it, 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 it turns on its head the way we think of even judging ourselves and judging our own life. And I thought, I think that's really great. Yeah. 
Well, that was that was my goal. I thought we we'd had some heavy stuff, uh, so maybe we should do something. It was still worth thinking about, but wouldn't be quite as depressing maybe as other things have been. And I'll say this is a movie that I hear referenced even today. I hear referenced a lot, so it's nice to like actually have seen it and know what people are talking about. Uh, what do you have for us for next week? <laughs> well, I think we need to get a little darker again. Um, literally, we're going to do a black and white film. This is uh, we're going to do a Bunuel's 1962 satire, "The Exterminating Angel," um, which is uh, in a Criterion edition that's available on Amazon Prime. So uh, it's 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 in that um, it's in that length range that we both like, Sam. It's about ninety-seven minutes or so, uh, and it's one of Bunuel's uh, early masterpieces. Um, so I, that's about all I'll say about it right now. It's, it, it's not quite like anything you've seen before, I don't think. And, uh, I'll just say that when well got to start as a surrealistic filmmaker, making a film with Salvador Dali in the 1930s, uh, and you're going to see plenty of surrealism in the exterminating angel. Barrett, I feel like you went into a lab and just described a description of something that I'm excited about, something I've never seen before, something that might be a little bit strange, um, something that's different from anything else I've seen. This, this is, this is going to be perfect. I, I'm very excited. I'm uh, very excited for this experience. Um, so thank you so much for recommending this film. Thank you so much for having this conversation. I think this is a movie that um, gains import uh, upon discussion because I think it's possible to watch this and only think of it as like oh that was a light 90 minutes and now I'm going to move on but but I think thinking about it talking about it really does um, stir up a lot of other thoughts so thank you so much for this that is all the time that we have but we will be back next week to talk about the exterminating angel in the video store 